0: I would like to remind you that this is a continuation of the preaching on the book of the Apocalypse of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the appearing of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the uh, second message concerning the fifth vision in the Apocalypse. The, uh, The entire vision is going to be stated within chapters 15 and 16. Now, this is the second message, and I'll be preaching just from chapter 15 next week, if it goes as as anticipated, I'll be preaching the entire chapter 16 next week. And you may say, well, that's kind of rushed, don't you think? Well, chapter 15 has eight verses and it has two sections. And chapter 16 is really one section that should be taken all at once. If I need to split it, I will. But I would say that the wrath of God is really the theme of this particular vision. And we need to walk away with this with a with a clear goal, with an idea that when we're done, we understood what the vision was intended to teach us. And so the doctrine today is this. God is holy and will deal with a sinful world with true justice. Now, God is going to oppose the willfully defiant sinner with omnipotent justice. God will utterly destroy those who are utterly given over to sin. And the great takeaway from this doctrine is this. The world sees the wrath of God as something that's kind of unfair. If you've ever seen a newscast, like when you look at the the nightly news, the weekly news, you see of some type of disaster, you may hear of a hurricane striking, a tsunami striking. And if a preacher dare say, if he would dare to say God is, is punishing this world. Oh, they don't like that. No. They spend the entire time saying, Oh, so-and-so had enough gall to even say that these people are sinners. Look, whenever bad things happen to good people. and think about that. Whenever bad things happen to good people. And I like what R.C. Sproul said about that. He said, that's never happened. Bad things have never happened to good people. There's only one good. And bad things did happen to him, but he volunteered. Mm -hmm. And so, when it comes to the judgment of God, we need to understand that the common grace of God is a broad good thing. And should God withhold the common grace that we do not deserve, We would be under the wrath of God every day in a most severe way. And one day it will be like that. It's called the Lake of Fire. Mm -hmm. That's what it is called. And there will be no holding back. And so I do have a brief review that I want to give you since it's been uh, two weeks since we looked at this topic. There are seven visions in the Apocalypse. We looked at the very first vision that's contained in chapters 1 through 3. And it has to do with the perspective of Christ being among his churches. And we're looking at the church on the earth. And if you recall, he sent letters to these churches and he walked among them. The second vision, verses, I mean, chapters 4 through 7, was a vision in heaven where God's throne was seen at the center of everything and that Christ was seen as the Lamb. He was the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but he was the Lamb of God and he approached the throne of God and took the scroll with the seven seals and there he opened those scrolls. Now the third vision that we see in chapters eight through eleven told us about the seven trumpets of God, how the trumpets announced the uh, the the wrath of God against this world, and that how they were warning the world. But they also had great events that happened. In chapters twelve through fourteen, we finished up just not too long ago about the various aspects of warfare, spiritual warfare, and how God saved us through Christ and how Satan was cast out of heaven. We saw Satan's helpers, how the dragon was represented um, to be Satan, how the Antichrist was anti-Christian governments, and how the false prophet was anti-Christian ideologies, and how that Babylon was the anti-Christian society. All these things. Today we're looking at chapters 15 and 16 called the Seven Bowls of Judgment, and we'll be covering this today and next week, Lord willing. We have yet to look at chapters 17 and 19 where we see the great victory of the Lord Jesus Christ comes on a white horse. He is seen from that perspective. And all of these visions show the work of God from the first advent to the second advent. And finally in chapters 20 through 22, we see the new heaven and the new earth coming down. And this is from the first advent to the second advent. They're all they're all displayed for us to be seen from a different perspective, showing a different goal to achieve. And so, when we are looking at these different visions, there will be a transition that's clear in the scripture. And usually within that transition, there is an escalation of, of, of shall we say, um, of terror for the people of the earth. But an escalation of comfort for God's people. It seems to be going up in that type of trend. And so today we're looking at the anger and the wrath of God. And we must remember that when, when, when men get angry, they usually lose their temper. They're usually out of control. You've heard of the phrase, crimes of passion. When men lose their minds, and they basically, for a legal standpoint, they're called temporarily insane. This is not our God. Our God is not to be represented as a God who has lost His temper and said, I've had it up to here, and I'm going to pour out bowls of wrath upon the earth. That's not how we should look at this. In fact, it is presented in in, in a different way, in a different way. And so the vision today we're looking at, it has three different parts to it. It has the first sentence, which is like the executive summary of the entire vision. Then we have the next verses one through four, shall we say, two through four, and that gives us the perspective, or shall we say, kind of a, a, a real general view of God's people being in a sea of glass, and then now after that we have the great emphasis of God's judgment being poured out upon the world. And so with that, let's go on and take a look at these plagues just a little bit. Because you see, the plagues that we're about to look at will be poured out. And think of it like this. When when I'm doing a, a job around the house, not too often, I'm not a, you know, I, I don't, if you've seen my truck, you know I don't wash it very often. However, if I was to take when it out of my driveway and I just sprinkle the water with my hands or just kind of this and that, you'd say, oh, you're just making it worse. Sometimes you just have to really spray it off. Sometimes you just have to, shall we say, just dump everything on it. The 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 type of wrath that God is coming out is going to be coming from bowls that are probably utensils of the temple or utensils of the tabernacle. They're done in a way where God says, this is my message and I approve it. You know, you've seen those political messages on TV. Yes, I approve this message. And it's poured out upon the world. And so we need to see that this is um, a serious thing. Now, the wrath that we see corresponds many times to the seven trumpets. We have things happening on the earth. We have things happening on the sea. We have things happening on rivers and springs. We have things happening on the, on the sun itself. We have uh, something happening in the trumpets. On the pit of the abyss. But also on the throne of the beast in the bowl. We also have things happening on the river Euphrates. We also have great hail happening. Now these things are... They seem to be in a a cycle. They seem to be showing the very same things, even though they are not identical. Because remember, every vision has its own purpose to achieve. And so what is being said or trumpeted or poured may not be identical. But if you'll take a closer look, you'll see that they do have very common goals to achieve. Now, before we're done, we're going to see that there's going to be a... um, a connection between what we see is poured out upon the earth and also what was poured out in Egypt back in Exodus chapter 20 uh, throughout the entire uh, book of the book of, uh, of the Exodus. We'll see boils involved. We'll see water turned to blood. We'll see the heavens declared with uh, all types of, of the darkening of the sun or the, or the bringing of hail. The great darkness, frogs coming. And we'll see that uh, heavens and hail will be Tremendous in this very last one, but all these point back to a time of Egypt, and they are very similar in nature and in what they're trying to achieve. And so with that, the last idea within the executive summary, which we called verse number one, the executive summary, is this, that these finish the wrath of God. They sum it up, and sometimes people look at that and say, well, that means he's going to do it at the very last, just before he comes back. But I would like to remind you of this, that God's wrath comes to all men. It comes to all generations. It comes to all kingdoms. And God has a way to reserve the wicked unto judgment, not just the very last day, but also the very last day of every man and of every kingdom. And so God has a way of bringing these plagues within a man's life. He has a way of bringing these plagues into a nation's uh, duration, And so he has a way of bringing this all the time. And when it says it finishes, it doesn't mean that he has nothing else to say about it. It means that he has brought his plan to the point where he is, he says, now is the appointed time. Now is the time. Now is the time that this man will say, I give up, I surrender, and I repent. Or, I will shake, it's like Pharaoh. He says, I'll not have God rule over me. And God gives that last judgment and swallows him up and his chariots and his horses in the sea. Just like every man, every nation, everyone who lives their life opposed to God. So, let's start with our new material. This is going to be chapter 15. We'll begin with verse number 5. And after this, and of course when I say after this, that means after seeing God's people on that sea of glass. Okay. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the Tent of Witness in heaven was opened. Now I'm going to read the next verse because it's the same sentence. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. So, these two verses really bring two things to mind. It talks about sanctuary, and it talks about seven angels. So first of all, the sanctuary is defined as a tent of witness, a tent of witness. Now I want you to to kind of make a, a distinction here. You may have a temple, which is a permanent building, but you may have a tent, which is a temporary dwelling place. Mm-hmm. And so this is a tent, and a tent of witness. And we're going to make we're going to get deeper into that. After that, we saw where the seven angels, and it says. The seven angels with the seven plagues. But actually, these angels do not receive the plagues. They're given bowls containing the wrath of God in the next verse. But these are the angels that will be given seven plagues. The writer, the apostle John, wants us to know that these angels are going to be those angels. They're the same angels, okay? And so we're not not confused about who has the bowls, okay? And so these angels, they come out of their out of the sanctuary, that's where they were, they were inside, and when they've come out, they're clothed in pure bright linen and golden sashes, and we'll take a look at that when the time comes. So let's take a look at the very first idea. The description about the tabernacle is not the one built by Moses, because you see this tabernacle is in heaven. Now remember that the one built by Moses was built on the earth after a pattern. So it is my opinion, and you know what I mean, right? Don't make me say it again. Sometimes my opinions are just opinions. But it is my opinion that this is the sanctuary that was given as a pattern to Moses. Now, just because it is a tabernacle in heaven, it also is a vision provided by the Apostle John that we can learn from. And so let's take a look at this temporary building, this tent, this sanctuary that is called, the, in, the, in the King James Version, it says it this way, the Temple of the Tabernacle of the Testimony. And the ESV says, the Sanctuary of the Tent of Witness. Now, the two things that combine there to kind of bring us, well, what does that mean? Why does it say the Tabernacle of the Testimony? And then the Tent of Witness. It has to do with the idea that if you looked at that tabernacle, you'd have like a fence around an area. Inside of that, you'd have a tent. Now that tent is enclosed. Inside that tent is the Holy Place. Now within the Holy Place, you have another wall of curtains from top to bottom. And beyond that is the Holy of Holies. However, within the Holy of Holies, you're going to have a piece of furniture that was made called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is for the covenant of Moses. But you see, this is a shadow and a type which represents the covenant made between God the Father and God the Son, the everlasting covenant, the one that saves the souls of men. Now, this Ark of the Covenant is something that is re- being referred to here because it says that this is the tabernacle of the testimony. This refers to the testimony or it is the, uh, the witness of God and it refers to the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are three things that are within that. The tablets delivered to Moses from Mount Sinai. Uh, a jar of manna and then a rod that Aaron had that budded in order to identify him as the one who is truly to be followed as the priest. All of these things can refer to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, in his heart, in his heart, the law of Christ is the law of God. It is how we recognize the character of God. What is the heart of Christ? It is the pure holiness of God. It is the pureness of who he is. It is a witness of as to who God is, it is a witness as to the character of God. Now if we were to speak about how God gives us that, we may speak about the bread. God gives the bread of heaven. We eat of Christ, we eat of the truth. He is our high priest. But today we're just gonna concentrate on that one idea, the tablets of God, the law of God. Because when this vision was given, it's identified that there is a place And it could have said, I mean, John could have said, well, there is the tabernacle of the bread of life. And you may say, well, I I remember that. There was a table within the holy place and it had the table of bread. Or he could have said, this is the tabernacle of the light of God. Oh, I remember the, the candelabra within the holy place. But it doesn't say that. It says, this is the tabernacle of the witness, which is within the Ark of the Covenant, and it is the two tables that give witness to who God is. Because God says, this is my witness against you and for you. This is my witness. And so what is being done is that God's witness is being used as the standard that these angels are coming out and they will then be pouring wrath out on the world. And so what is being done? God is witnessing against the world that his wrath is just and it's based upon his law. It is the law of God. This most holy place, having the ark of God. And this ark is very unique. It is a wonderful piece of furniture. It is something that's been designed and told to us, or Moses was told how to make it. It's made out of wood, but it's covered in gold. They don't touch it. It has rings on it that you can put wood through, staves of wood or poles to carry it. But there's something special about this box. It has a lid called the mercy seat. Now, this mercy seat is not wood covered in gold. It is solid gold. Solid gold, and it has two, shall we say, angelic beings on it. Cherubim. Two cherubim. Now, the description says that they're molten and beat out of one single piece. Now, it is my opinion that these angels that were made out of gold are not attached to the mercy seat. They're all one piece. I don't know how you would do that. You'd have to be pretty crafty and pretty skilled to do that. But the idea is that we have a piece of gold separating the law and witness of God by what's called mercy, and then you have the angelic beings of God that have been given the authority and the responsibility to, glory, to protect the glory of God. And they face each other with their wings covering their faces. And they look at each other. And this is where God says, I am going to meet you there. That is where I will talk to you. Between the cherubs and the mercy, above the mercy seat, which is above the witness of God. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is such a picture of Christ. It cannot be said. Uh, it, It is so clear. It is so clear that we have Christ as the mediator. It is his name is Emmanuel, God with us. This is where I will speak to you. And now, in heaven, in this vision, from the witness, or shall we, from the sanctuary of the witness, bowls of wrath are coming out. So, the second thing we see, the angels coming out. They're coming out of the sanctuary. Now, these particular angels, they come on the behalf of God's wrath, but I want you to think of this. They come on the behalf of God's righteousness and justice because they are going to be given the responsibility of pouring out God's wrath. Now, these two, the, the, one, the one that's there's going to be a creature that's going to give these bowls of of wrath to the angels. And it's one of the four creatures that are around the throne of God. Now these creatures have been mentioned before, I believe, by Ezekiel and also by Isaiah. Um, Some have given them names, Seraphim. Uh, Some say that they have different, you know, well the scriptures here, actually in the first of this Apocalypse, describes them as having a face of a man, a face of an ox, a face of a lion, a face of an eagle and they cover their eyes. We see in that Ezekiel says that they fly with two wings, they cover their eyes with two wings. And they, and they have the unique responsibility of being responsible for the holiness of God. And so what we have here is that these, this creature gives these angels coming out, and if you recall the description of Christ in the first vision, he looked exactly the way these angels are dressed. Dressed in white, a gold sash around their middle, And so you can say that they are dressed to represent the cause of Christ. They come from the Ark, from the very presence of, of, shall we say, this is where I'm going to meet you, or Emmanuel, from God Himself. And I'm going to say, and this is my opinion, they're sent by Christ to do this. They're sent by Christ to send this wrath upon the the world. Now, we see how they're dressed, and that we can say, like their master, They are pure in their motives, and they are pure in their tasks. They are going to be doing the will of God, which is just and right. God is not going to be ruled by his passions. He is going to be ruled by justice and righteousness. And we need to get these words in our hearts and minds. The holiness of God is the purest virtue that can be conceived by human beings. It is pure virtue. But when we think of righteousness, I want you to think of a holiness that's turned itself into a law. It is like a legislative form of holiness. And when holiness is turned into a law, then that's something that we can see, something that we can understand, because we obey law. God doesn't obey law. He is who He is. He is naturally being who He is. His his obedience can't even be called obedience because He is being who He is. But we see the holiness of God. And when we see the witness of who He is, we see the testimony of the Ten Commandments as given on Mount Sinai. And so the witness is the law. Now, when God says, I have given my law and creatures have disobeyed the law, what you have now is sin. The breaking of law is sin. And what happens to holiness? Holiness now expresses itself not by law, but by, ju- by justice. That's when a judge says, according to the law, this is what must happen. And so justice is a form of holiness that becomes a judgment. The judgment of God is holiness being given to man. And this is a good thing. This is where we need to say, just and good is all of God's works. Praise His name for His wrath. Praise His name for His justice. For His judgments upon the world. We should not apologize for God saying, Oh, He's a harsh God. He is not a harsh God. He is a just God. He is a good God. And His wrath comes upon creatures that truly deserve it. This world deserves it. He's good. God is a good God. No one can say to Him, Why have you done this? How many times have I said that to my kids? What's going on here? Why have you done this? And I have to ask. I have to really find out what happened here. God knows these things and He is good. And all this, we need to have this. This is one of the lessons that we need to learn. That God is just and true. That's how it's stated. Just Amen. and true. All these things. It says that the temple was filled with smoke. Now we may say, well that's That's pretty easy to understand. Smoke is something you just can't see through. Okay, next. Well, this smoke is actually identified. The smoke is called the glory of God and His power. Now you may say, well, that's a lot of characteristics to be given just smoke. Why would this? Because it has to do with something that we cannot see through and we cannot comprehend. Whatever is beyond that smoke is something that we cannot understand. But we know this, the glory of God is there, and His power is there. And that what He has done, He is going to do. And when those angels come out, there's no one in there. No one could go back into the temple until the wrath of God is complete. And this tells me another thing. That when it comes to God's judgment, right now, this is like God saying, now is the time. There is no more to be said. I am here, and here it comes. There is no more discussion. How many times have you had a debate with anyone? And it's like, you know, we've said everything that can be said. And God is not impatient. Some people say, well, the patience of God will run out one day. No, it'll never run out. The time will just come when He's supposed to act, and He does. And so, we have your God being deliberate and that God has made up His mind, that justice will come, and it will be poured out in wrath. <coughs> Excuse me. I have three easy applications for us to learn from this. Number one, we need to learn to be patient and waiting for our answers, to, to, you know, for answers to our prayers. God is always going to answer our prayers when we ask according to His will. It is an important thing to approach God in prayer. It is, a, it is not a time when we say, well, there's nothing else I can do. These are just words. I might as well just say them. No, prayer is an important thing. It is a good thing. And you need to seek the wisdom of God in saying, I want to pray for what God wants. I want to pray for what God wants. And now you're allowed to pray the way our Lord prayed. If it's at all possible that this cup be taken from me. But if not, thy will be done. Do you see the difference there? We need to pray that whatever God's plan for us is done, even if it hurts and is painful to us. Because the wrath of God does not come to destroy us. Many times the wrath of God will be the triggering element that brings salvation to your heart and soul. Many times it will be used of God. Only God has that ability to use sin for that good. And that is done by Christ, by the way. He was killed by the hands of sinners and yet it was the death of Christ that brought salvation to our souls and righteousness given to Him. I want to remind you what we read in Revelation chapter 8 concerning the prayers of the saints and how it was delivered. In Romans, I mean in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 we read this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came out and stood at the altar with a censer, golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And so we can see that this is a very similar view of what we're looking at in the pouring out of the bowls. Because what we have now is that the bowls of wrath are actually the answers to the prayers of God's people who are suffering at the hands of the dragon and of the beast and of the Antichrist and of the Babylon society. So with that, <clears throat> prayer is something that we should learn with patience that we can say, God will answer our prayers. Prayer is truly a worship thing. It is a thing of adoration. It is a thing that is pleasing to God. And we need to seek to pray according to His will. The second application is our view of mercy and justice. Because we see that this place that the angels are coming out of is identified as the Sanctuary of the Witness. And that identifies the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where we have the justice and righteousness of God stored within the heart of God that's separated by mercy. The mercy seat. And God meets us above the mercy seat. And that is very, very important. i like to read to you Exodus 25, verse 22. It says this, And there I will meet with thee, I will commune with thee, above the mercy seat, and between the two cherubims, and which are upon the ark of the testimony. It's called the ark of the testimony because it keeps the Ten Commandments. Of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. This is the place where mercy and justice have embraced in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Because understand that mercy cannot be given to the innocent. It's only given to the guilty. And therefore, if the guilty can only receive mercy, in order to give mercy, justice must suffer. Unless you have an atoning work where one suffers for you. And we must remember That the beautiful nature of God, His justice and His holiness is purely intact because Christ bore our sins. This is where pure justice is elevated and lifted up and mercy is then provided. This is where the wrath of God can only come when justice is fully realized. I would like to read a section of scripture from John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20 verses 11 to 14. And listen carefully to the description. This is after the Lord was crucified. But Mary stood without the sepulchre weeping and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And seeth two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say to her, Woman, Why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken my Lord away, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew that it was Jesus. Now I want you to use your imagination a bit here. When we look between the cherubs on the mercy seat, where God says, This is where I'm going to meet with you, communion with you. And, 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 and this is where we see the presence of God. We see our God between these two angels. And what did Mary see? He saw, she saw the place where Christ was killed and where he rose again. And between those two cherubs, that's when she saw Christ. That is where she saw Christ. This is another way of saying that our Lord is the heart of the, of the, of the covenant of, between the Father and the Son, and He has given us His own presence. Application number three. The law of God is truly very important. The law of God. It has, been, it has become popular today in this day and age to say that we are no longer under the law and therefore we are not bound to keep the law. And I'd have to say, depending on what those words mean, I can agree with it. But a lot of times, people have a way of changing the meaning of words on the fly. Knowing what words mean are very, very important. That is why I would like to read some scripture to you. And then we're going to have a small, very brief discussion on it. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 27. Is an important part of Romans, and I've often said that the book of Romans is the theology book of the New Testament. This is the passage that changed the life of Martin Luther. This is the passage that changed the direction of history in the Reformation. And now let me read these words to you, and then I want to briefly address them. Now we know that when things, whatsoever the things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. It's an interesting phrase, to be under the law. That every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, which is without law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. I would like to add to that two verses from Romans chapter 6, which read this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Well, by no means. I would like to say this about that. Many times people will use the phrase, we are not under the law, as an excuse to say, I'm not convicted by that, and the law doesn't save me. And therefore, they create a barrier between themselves and the witness of God. The very beauty of God's law, they attempt to put a barrier. But you see, to say that we are under the law is a legal term. If you had a contract between two people and there are conditions in the contract, then those people are under those conditions. And if God said, in order for you to be in my presence, you must obey all the law in the Ten Commandments, you must obey that. That is your righteousness. If you fail to do that, you will not be saved from my wrath. That is being under. The binding condition of a contract that's under the binding condition of a covenant. That's what that means. However, the Christian is under the law in this sense. We are bound by our love to God who says, If only my sin could be eradicated. If only I could escape my love of sin and have what is good and right. Then I would love to put myself under the beauty of God's holiness. We are only bound by our love to who He is. Not by a contract. The contract is done by Christ. Christ meets the contract. We are in Christ. And therefore being under the law means that we are under His love and our love to Him. Now I want to stress this fact. That we must see the beauty of holiness and of justice and righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. But if you have no love for holiness, no love for justice and righteousness, then what have you been saved from? Just the punishment of what you deserve? You have only destroyed justice. Is that your goal? To destroy justice? That you should get away with it? No. See the beauty of the atonement. See the beauty of who Christ is. You are not under a binding contract He kept that for us. We are in Him with an everlasting covenant. We are under the love. We have now the love of righteousness and we can bear witness to who God is by loving who He is. And that is what we're looking at when we see that God has poured out wrath upon the earth. And we say, bless His holy name. Bless His holy name. God is holy and will deal with a sinful world with true justice. God will oppose the willfully defiant sinner with omnipotent justice that He calls wrath. And in that time of great tribulation, God's people will be comforted. They will be comforted. Truth is going to be placed deep within our hearts. The truth that God is acting on their behalf all the time. And that there, when I say there, I mean we, being in the hand of God, from within the deepest places of our own affections that God has changed, that we will sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ for His mighty deeds. And these deeds will be seen, sometimes in great acts of kindness, and sometimes in great acts of wrath. Mm The wrath of God. Do not apologize for God. It is His great justice. It is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing, a thing of beauty. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we now praise Your name for Your beauty. You are holy and You are righteous and You are just. And we pray, Lord, that You would move upon the hearts of Your people, that You would give us a love, a love for what is just, a love for what is right, May we see who you are truly. May we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And may we respond to the witness that comes from the very heart of Christ, that is deep within him, the laws of Christ. He is our bread of life. He is our high priest. And his very heart is what we desire to have. And so, Father, we pray that we might commune with you because we are in Christ. And this is where you have chosen to meet with us, and to commune with us, and to be with us. And so, Father, we say, please, come quickly. May all these things be done to glorify you, to uplift Christ, and to save sinners from their sins. We pray this in our Lord's name.